you're visiting with us today for the first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you. I'm really glad that you've chosen to join us this morning, and I pray that as we continue our time of worship by opening the scriptures, that you will be ministered to as I have been as I prepared this message this week. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have several spread around. If you open our Bible and you're like, man, I like the way this one feels and reads, feel free to take it with you as our gift to you. So open with me to Mark chapter 12. I want to give us a running start leading up to this continued confrontation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. Last week, we took a break from the Gospel of Mark. It was our fifth Sunday. Typically on fifth Sundays, we bring our boys and girls in with us, ages four and up, and have a family worship gathering. It was a really exciting time, and many of you showed up and brought your kids. It was awesome. I really uh, was encouraged by that. And last week, I talked on the issue of worry from Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about not being worried about what we wear or what we eat or what we drink, um, because God is mindful of those things. Instead, that we're free because of God to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and trust that he'll take care of the rest. The week before that, we were in Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, um, we see some really fantastic things as Jesus is entering into Israel, heading towards his ultimate destruction in obedience to the Father for ultimately the forgiveness of our sin. And so we see him riding in on a colt of a donkey, which is a young donkey, Riding in, in this fantastic fanfare, people praising and, and exalting and excited that Jesus is coming in. They had an idea of what they wanted to believe Jesus was. They wanted to believe he was a warrior king that came in to destroy the Roman Empire so that Israel might again have the mighty foothold. But that wasn't God's plan. And then we see Jesus come back into the temple the next day, begin overturning tables and, and thrashing it with whips, saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, the temple being God's house, Jesus claiming to be God, not only with words, but by his actions of destroying this setup of this huge farmer's market inside the temple. And so after that, the religious leaders come to him and basically say in their language, who do you think you are? And Jesus begins explaining to them um, who he is, but before he'll give him an answer, he asks them, who was John the Baptist? Was his baptism from man made up, or was it from God? And the religious leaders were stumped because they understood if they said it was from God, then he would ask them, then why did you not accept his message? But if they said it was from man made up, then the people would come after them. And so in this dialogue that Jesus is happening, where he is being question about his authority, he then gives a, a parable. The intention of a parable typically is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. The result of Jesus's parables, though, are either an instructive moment where people learn and are changed, or it's a hardening moment that it continues to solidify people in their rejection of God and their unbelief. And so there's going to be two responses this morning to this story. Either you'll feel instructed, maybe convicted, maybe challenged, or you'll feel further hardened in your unbelief. What there's not room for when you're hearing a parable of Jesus is apathy. We'll talk more about that as we dig in. So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And as we go through this, we will see that God has the authority and the power to overrule any attempt to block his purposes. We see that throughout history, that God has the authority and the power to overrule any attempt to block his purposes. He will not be stopped. He will not be thwarted. His will will come to its appropriate end in his timing. And Jesus shares 
this parable, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. So this vineyard illustration would be very familiar to these, these Jewish leaders. They would understand that Isaiah 5 talked about the vineyard of God, that Israel is God's vineyard, that his people is a vineyard that's being cultivated for the purpose of bearing fruit. And a good vineyard produces fruit, and a bad vineyard does not. So it's not coming from this idea of just like, oh, by the way, this guy has a rental property, and this rental property is meant to bring an income. Jesus is going more to an illustration, a story that people will start catching. It's at this point that his parables become more clear, that people begin to understand what it is he's actually saying. In fact, in Isaiah 5, when he's talking about the, the vineyard of God's people, he's speaking of God's judgment on Israel's leaders' hard-heartedness. And so he's coming out of the gate with this illustration, but it's not so masked any longer. It's becoming very clear. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. This is common practice as well. They would, uh, wealthy landowners would purchase land, they would cultivate, cultivate the land, and then they would entrust it to people to run it and to manage it, and they would come and take anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of, of the harvest. They owned the land. They had people pay them and share with them the profits of the land so that they would then be able to work it and make a living themselves. When the season came, he sent a servant, so the owner of the land sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the first time he goes and he sends somebody to them to receive, the owner does, to receive payment, to receive a portion of the harvest. And their greed, their unwillingness to honor their agreement and understand their purpose, the way they reacted was with violence. They violently reacted to the demands of the landowner. He sent someone to them, his servant, and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So they're stepping up their game. They're moving from just violence to being greatly degrading, greatly shaming, greatly dishonoring to the servant. And I want you, as we read through this, I want you to experience what would that be like. Imagine yourself as the landowner, something that is agreed upon, that is rightfully yours, And the person who has made that agreement not only is refusing to pay, but then are treating your people violently. But I also don't want you to dismiss the fact that perhaps we're also like the tenants. That we make an agreement, we say, yeah, that sounds awesome, until payment comes and the hard things start to happen, and then we are unwilling any longer to go along with what we had agreed to. Verse 5, and he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Can Can you imagine the patience? Can you fathom and get the patience, the mercy, and the grace of this landowner? This landowner, the first time they refused to pay, I mean, 
I've only heard, I've never seen a mafia movie. I'm kidding, I've seen some. And if you don't pay, there's escalating penalties for not paying. That's even true with a bank or a credit card company. You get a notice, and then you get some phone calls, and you start getting harassed. But this landowner, obviously illustrating the Father in heaven, sending people to get what is rightfully his, while being rejected, instead of coming immediately and laying down the law and coming with a heavy hand, he instead responds patiently and peacefully and continues to pursue, and he continues to provide opportunity for them to do the right thing, to respond in the way that they had agreed. So let's not miss this mercy, and mercy is not getting what we deserve. This great mercy of this landowner, not bringing about quick and specific regulation, but rather waiting patiently to the point of, okay, they, they're beating, they're killing, they're shaming my servants. Surely they will respond differently to my own son. Surely. But those tenants, verse 7, said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So what is their response to that ongoing mercy and grace? What is their response to that patience that's being shown? More greed. More hunger for power. The greater illusion of sovereignty. Strategizing to get there and keep their own way. What can we get? What can we do to manifest this in such a way that we will get and maintain what we believe is rightfully ours? I don't know if you've ever heard the word entitlement. I know we don't struggle with that in our culture. And you're laughing because we do. I do. Feeling like someone owes us something. Jesus is telling this parable of this landowner who made an agreement had this landowner not purchased the land and had not produced the vineyard, these people would have nowhere to live and to work and to produce. Yet he had gone out of the way generously doing that. It's right for him to earn a piece of it. It was his, the entire vineyard. But, but these people didn't like that it was his. They wanted it to be theirs. They wanted to have ownership of it. They wanted to have full benefit of it. They wanted to take that which someone else had created and had sustained and is maintaining, and they wanted to take it for themselves, for their own pleasure, for their own benefits. That's what they were going after. And so when he did the final act of grace by sending his son, surely they'll show him some respect. Surely we can work it out. They killed him. Because they believed that they killed him and he was out of the way, somehow legally they could work their way in to acquire that land for themselves. Their greed, their hunger for power made them violent and hardened people. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What would you do? What would you do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. God had a called and chosen people, Israel, who 
for many centuries by this point, continuously rejected, beat, and murdered his messengers. They were God's people, yet they did not care about the ways of God. They didn't care about the person of God. They didn't care about the kingdom of God. They cared about their own kingdom. They leveraged their faith for control and power. They wanted the benefits of God without having the person of God. They wanted full benefits so that when the person of God, Jesus, came, declaring the ways of the king, the father, they wanted nothing to do with it. They continued to reject it. And any prophet that would come saying otherwise, they would destroy, they would beat, they would shun, they would shame. This is a profound warning to the people of Israel. This is a profound warning to the people of God. When God began making a covenant with himself, with Abraham, he told him, I will make you a blessing to many nations through my covenant. And the vehicle of his covenant was through the people of Israel. Jesus was a part of Israel. The promises of God were fulfilled in the person of God, Jesus. But the people of God did not want the promises of God. They believed that what they could come up with was better than God. Have we heard that story before? In Genesis chapter 3, God's creation, Adam and Eve, who were created to worship God and enjoy each other and enjoy the creation, were told to only eat from the tree of life because the tree of knowledge of good and evil would let them know what God knows. And they were on a need-to-know basis. But then a serpent came and told them that, hey, you won't die. God's holding out on you, essentially is what he's saying. And Adam and Eve believed that God was holding out on them, and so they disobeyed God. They rejected God and accepted a lie, and they went after that lie, and the dominoes began to fall. And we see that throughout the Old Testament history of God in his mercy and grace, sending his messengers to his people, forming a law so they could understand what the relationship needs to look like and ways for them to become clean before a holy and perfect God, yet they would reject it and reject those who said anything about it. There's this ongoing rejection of the person of God and the kingdom of God and the reputation of God by the people of God. Because they wanted what was theirs. They believed they deserved more. That they were being held out on. There, Jesus is giving a very clear warning here to these people. Warning them about what will happen if they choose to follow through with what they desire. And rather than me just say, oh, this is what they desire, let's read. And Jesus warns them. He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What the Lord was going to do was fully restore and elevate that which was his will. The one that had come, the Messiah, the chosen one, the sent one, the Redeemer, the one who had come that was going to be rejected and destroyed, not only would not be stopped, but then would be elevated as the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. So although they thought they could thwart God's plan, and although they thought they could outsmart God's will, and although they were living in open rejection of God's will, God would not be stopped. And Jesus is actually very kindly making a strong appeal to those planning to kill him to consider what they're doing and to consider 
the consequences of their action. He's urging them, slow down and consider what you're thinking about doing. It will not end well for you. You might believe that you gain power and control, but in all reality, if you follow through with your plan to kill the son, you will bring upon yourself a judgment that you cannot handle. You will lose any inheritance that you had. You will lose half, and it will be taken from you and given to other people. You see, people get confused about Jews and Gentiles, but if you slow down and actually read the Gospels, and you go and read Romans, and you begin to understand God's judgment on those who rebel against him and harden their heart, God has made a promise and is keeping that promise. He is warning his people, don't continue down this path. Don't go this way. I'm urging you, please stop. Please listen. Please consider You notice that when he talks about the tenants, the, the people who are leasing the property, their doing was to kill the messengers and ultimately the son. That was their doing. That's our doing. But the father's doing, what his will is, is to exalt the rejected stone, to exalt the rejected Messiah. And not just to say, see, I'm right, but See that he is God. If you see Jesus, you see God. See God, know God, obey God, turn from your sin. He's speaking very directly and very open with them. And so there's one or two ways really to respond to that. And so how do they respond? Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. For the first time, their perception was accurate. They had been making a lot of hunches and assuming a lot of things, but for the first time, their assessment was correct. He was speaking to them. He is speaking to us. God is not apathetic about his glory. God is not apathetic about his kingdom. God is not apathetic about his will. God is not apathetic about his gospel of good news. He cares. He cares deeply. He's fully vested. He will fulfill his promises. And that is something we must not take lightly. That is something we must stop and consider. Even if you're here this morning and you're not yet convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, which is the Son of God and the Savior of mankind, the one who is able and willing to forgive your sins, if you're not yet at a place where you trust in that, you at least need to know what you're facing. You at least need to be aware of the consequences of your rejection of the Messiah. The rejection of the Messiah ultimately leads to destruction by the hand of his father. And that's not what I want for you. That's not what I desire for you. Going to church is not what makes you right with God. Being a quote-unquote good person is not what makes you right with God. The only thing that makes you right with God is God himself through his son Jesus. And these people hearing it, there was a reaction. And so the first thing I want to draw from this passage is this. When power becomes our God, we will do whatever it takes to get it and keep it. And this power comes in many different ways in the form of greed, in the form of control, whether it's control at work or control in the home or control of our kids. It's taking 
reliance and dependence on God and taking it upon ourselves to be God. It's a profound, strong, selfish urge to protect and control and maintain and build, not for God's glory. We might stamp it with that, but that's not our motive or intention. Our motive and intention is really for our own power. And people will do a lot of things when it comes to power. You see that when people are greedy. And most greedy people are the ones that argue the most towards their generosity. Oh, I'm generous. I mean, I give a couple bucks here, I do this or that. Do you realize that all that we have is God's? All of it. And so our desire to hold on to it and to manage it is not an act of faithfulness. It's an act of disobedience. And we position ourselves, we allow our hearts to be hardened and I don't know anybody in the faith or who's been around the church who grows up morning saying, I got to work towards hardening my heart. It doesn't start that way. It starts with just slowly devaluing the word of God and the kingdom of God and the good news of God, Jesus, and elevating our preferences. And as we do that, it becomes harder for us to then submit to God. And we start reacting heavily against the word of God. I was once told that somebody had brought their neighbor to church and they'd come for a while and they're like, man, we like that guy, but he talks too much about money. And I asked the guy, I said, was he talking about Jesus or was he talking about me? Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about money as much, if not more, than he talks about hell. He talks about the dangers of wealth, about being choked out by possessions, and if you don't know me, I'm not against money or wealth, but I view it as fuel. It's God's fuel to do what God desires to do. But I don't sit here and just bash you over the head about giving and money and everything else. I trust the Lord to bring conviction by the Holy Spirit. There is time there is to be accountability. There's time as a church we need to be reminded because I don't know about you. I begin to justify my management of finances by calling it the churchy word. You know what the churchy word is? Stewardship. But that's fine, and I try to be mindful of how I speak about it. But people like complete control. That's why people get offended when I tell them I don't believe any of us has absolute free will because we are created by a creator, and that creator has absolute free will. But if we're created by a creator, there's always parameters to our will. And I believe that sin has had an effect on our will. If the fall in the garden is true then we have completely fallen and our will is broken as well. Therefore, when the Bible says in Romans 8 that the mindset upon the flesh is hostile towards God, I tell people without Christ, we freely sin. And anything we do that is good is still offensive to God because we're not doing it for his glory. And that makes people upset, man, because quite honestly, that's our theology. It's our free will and God is privileged if we choose him. That's American theology, not biblical theology. God is always acceptable. Sin causes us to be unacceptable. Therefore, when we say, I've accepted God, we're saying he was once unacceptable to me, but became acceptable. That's not true. God has always been acceptable. And so when God moves through his son Jesus upon your life, he makes you through Christ acceptable so that you can then approach a holy God. Because otherwise you cannot. And that's good news. That God does what we cannot do. He makes us right so that we can then hope and choose God freely. 
We try to control and have sovereignty over our futures. We want power over it. For our kids, and I said this to you before, many good, well-intended Christian parents become atheists when it comes to the future of their children. If the God who made them, who loves them, who Lord willing will redeem them, cares enough for the salvation of their souls, isn't he mindful of their financial needs, their education, and all the things that go along with it? So to point back to last week, so why do we worry so much? It's not that we don't educate our kids and think through it. My wife and I, for years, have toiled through education and options and how to do it and what's best. And, and we don't have a crystal ball if we did, and we knew that Braylon would do best in homeschool and in public school and in private school and then hopping on one foot and reading the Bible, then we would do it. Amen? Right? We would do it. If we knew, like, this is a formula to make our kids successful, but you notice that the charge to parents in the Bible isn't success, it's faithful. It's being faithfulness. Are you being faithful to the gospel? Are you being faithful to your children? Are you positioning them frequently to hear from God and to learn from God beginning in your home and then at church and in an environment modeling and living that God and his kingdom and his bride, the church, are a priority and we want to live into that priority? See, the reality is, is when we get wrapped up in wanting our own power and control and want to control our future and manage it and everything else, we start hardening our hearts towards the things of God. And so instead of hearing the word of God and saying, you know what, there may be something here for me that I can learn and maybe adjust and maybe change a bit. And because of this learning, then maybe I can change a little bit instead of hearing it that way. And you may not agree. And quite honestly, I could be wrong on things. Let me, let me tell you, I am wrong on some things. That's why I tell you, bring your Bible, open your Bible, read along with me, press into it, open it. I'm not, I'm not God, but I want you to know him. And so how are you receiving this word right now? Are you thinking defensively like, well, you know, my money, no, I'm not, I'm not thinking of any one of you. I'm thinking of us. I'm thinking of those who are not yet in this room, who don't yet know Jesus I'm thinking about the illusion of our community believing that we have control and we're going to, if we can't fix it, we're going to vote it in, that some politician is going to be our savior. I mean, I don't even know what to say to that by, by now. We just need to pray on that front. We're looking for salvation and we're looking in all the wrong places. The second thing we can draw from this passage is there's really two ways to respond to God's truth. You can accept it and obey it, or you can reject it. And quite honestly, the greatest threat to the church and her mission is apathy, just not caring at all. That's, that's the biggest fight I have to fight in this culture, is comfort. I mean, if, if we let ourselves, right, let's just be honest, if we let ourselves... We would become content with showing up here on Sundays at least 75% of the year, or at most, having donuts and coffee, some free waters, which y'all drink thirsty, a good kids' ministry, safety and security, and we come in and out each week. And as long as I preach a B or higher in sermons, we're not going to grumble too much. Occasionally, you allow me a C. If I do a D, you're praying for me. But we can let ourselves just kind of do that. But if, if, if coming in here as the people of God, worshiping the person of God, doesn't transform our thinking and cause us to mature 
And, and not just mature spiritually so that we're doing longer quiet times, but mature as people. Where we're more quick to forgive and forget. We're more loving towards people. We're more patient and kind. We're no longer so self-focused that we're more selfless, that we're quicker to apologize and we're quicker to forgive and release because we're growing in our understanding of the radical grace of God given in and through the person and work of Jesus. The more we press into that, we should be maturing and getting better, not just with stuff and wealth and success, but in faithfulness to God and his word. When was the last time you allowed yourself to really feel convicted by God's word to the point it caused you to pause and evaluate some things? When was the last time you heard from God's word and said, God, thank you that I am doing that and I didn't 10 years ago? When was the last time you stood in awe of realizing that rather than that person who's acting like an idiot, you remember that you used to be that person too before Christ stepped in? See, before we look at these landowners and at the Jewish leaders and point our fingers... I think we need to take a good look at our heart because my response to hearing a proclaimed truth oftentimes is defensiveness. And I believe the way the Lord invites us to come into his presence, the one time many of you are only able to in a week is vulnerability. God, I don't have it together. God, I'm eating too much or drinking too much or looking at the stuff or treating my wife horribly or not forgiving my husband. I haven't really cared about the Bible, or I'm unforgiving towards this person, but I'm unwilling to talk to them. I mean, that's a hardening of your heart. And I'm not saying we come in here so microscopic in the mirror on ourselves that we miss God, but I do believe that the more we come and open ourselves up to God, the more he begins to free us from the things that hold us back. The more he begins to give us the life that lasts forever, the living water that rises up in us, to eternal life. When was the last time you were confronted by God's word and it caused you to pause and evaluate? Because I think for most of us, it's super easy to get in the habit of going to church and that's the habit. I'm glad you're here. If you weren't here, my family would be yelled at a lot in a very small room. I'm glad you're here. I'm not down on you. What I'm saying is, let's not just play church. God's not done with you or me yet. And even if you don't even know God yet, the fact that you're here is God's invitation to you to know Him. The fact that you're here is God's providence, meaning God's careful orchestration of events to place you in this room today either to hear for the first time that there's a God who made you, who loves you, who's committed to saving you through His Son, Jesus, can and will. Maybe you're hearing that for the first time, but maybe there's some of you in this room that have walked away from that and have gone your own way, and your life is pretty much a train wreck. I want to tell you, come home. There's a warning. The owner of the vineyard will rectify and make right what is His. Come home. Be set free, be forgiven, be made new. The last thing I want to see in this passage, and then we'll be done for today, is that God will uphold and protect his truth for our good. He will uphold and protect his gospel. He will uphold and protect his glory for our good. He will do it. These 
tenants believe that as long as we do with these servants what we need to do, as long as we do away with them, if we take his son and get him out of the way, then we will be able to thrive in our leadership. We will be able to overpower it. We will be able to have strength in it. And we will be able to then reign in dominion. If we can just deal with this guy, he's a momentary threat, let's get him out of the way. I think a lot of us do that. Look, I know I'm a Christian, but at work, that's business. I hear that a lot. You love Jesus at home and at church, but over in business, it's a different thing. Look, Christ died to save all of you and informs all of that. And guess what? Business is owned by God too. So just, that's, that's bad theology. That's bifurcation that doesn't exist in the Bible. Some of us, I mean, that's how we're holding on to power. We compromise our faith and who we are so that we can gain. I've been tempted towards that before. I still face temptations like that today. But the good news for you and I is God will not deny himself. These tenants believed that they were going to be able to do away with the son, then it would be theirs. They would work it so they could be theirs. And here's what Jesus said. The father will then come and destroy them. Not rebuke them, not correct them, not give them a talking to. Annihilate, destroy and then take what is theirs and give it to other people. His plan will not be thwarted. His truth will not be overcome. No matter how hard-hearted you are currently in this moment, you might think that, well, yeah, that's God, but I'm going to do my own thing, or I don't believe in God, or if God's true, then he's not for me. Your hard heart is saying those things. You can live your life in hard-heartedness. As we see in this passage, this owner of the vineyard, the father, is patient. He's patient. That doesn't mean he's unjust, and it doesn't mean it'll go on forever. You will be held accountable one day. You will be held to account for your disobedience and your hard-heartedness. God will uphold and protect his truth for our good. And what is his truth? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is God's truth. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to make right what we have made wrong. He lived, died, and rose again so that we might be forgiven. He lived, he died, he rose again so that we might be set free. He lived, he died, he rose again so that we might not get stuck living the same patterns over and over again, fighting the same fights, struggling the same addictions, having the same fears. He lived, he died, he rose again so that we might be set free. Are you free? Is your heart tender towards the things of God? When God tells you to stop looking at pornography, will you? When God says be generous with your money, will you? When God says forgive your wife or your friend, will you? When God says bear with each other in love, love covers a multitude of sins, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing but delights with the truth, Will you obey him? Will you follow him? And when you're not, will you confess that and admit that to God? Why are we waiting for God's stamp of approval when he's made very clear what he wants from us? He wants us to love him. He wants us to love each other. He wants us to love our enemies. He wants us to seek those who are far from him. He wants us to go after the one who doesn't know God, who hates God, and show them the gospel and share the gospel. That's what God wants. And if we're not doing that, we are living just like these greedy vineyard owners saying, it's not enough. 
give me more when really God's saying, you want to experience me? Then do what I say to do. That's the good news of the gospel, friends. That's what we're inviting you to here at Christ Community Church. It's not just congratulate each other for not looking at pornography, but to encourage each other towards God. I think so often churches focus so much on what we shouldn't be doing that we don't focus on what we should be doing. I'm guilty of that. Please forgive me. We should be drawing near to God to know him, not just so that we sin less, but that we have more of the eternal God. We should be speaking to our neighbors and doing hard things and sacrificially serving in a way that is honoring to God and helpful to our community. We shouldn't just be keeping track of what God owes us, but rather go to God because he's given us all and saying, here's my all. Some of you are here today and you are tired of doing it on your own. You've tried that path. And it, let, me, let me act like a prophet to you. It's not working. It won't. You were never made for that. Look, ladies, your husband might be an idiot. But ultimately what I find when I counsel couples is that they're expecting too much from each other. The ultimate cure of laziness is not your husband being more present. That helps. But it's intimacy with God. Husbands, the thing that's going to make your wife less materialistic isn't just you doing more what she says or making her more happy. She's not going to be happier because you do what she says all the time. And somebody's like, yes, I would. Trust me, you weren't made for that. We need Jesus. We need him, and he's been given freely. And we're able to have him and know him and enjoy him and serve him and walk with him and see him do powerful things. That's what I want to see happen here. I don't want to live like these religious leaders. I can be like them. I want to build my own kingdom and my own show. I was talking with Stephanie last night, and I said if the only good Christ community is doing is gathering on Sundays listening to me talk, then I, I don't want to be a part of that because my job in talking isn't just so you feel better about yourself and you go on with your life. M my charge in preaching is to bring you Jesus and for you to deal with that and deal with him and accept and trust what his instructions are for the believer or to trust or reject as a non-believer. And then to go and obey and do the work of ministry in your neighborhood and at your job and in your home and with your finances. That's what I want to do here. I'm going to faithfully proclaim the word of God to obey the charge as an elder and preacher and to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for those who are not yet believers that are in this room so you might hear the glories of God and hear about the person of Jesus and how you, even as jacked up as you might be, can be made right with God and he will change your life and use you. Listen, as much control as we have grown to believe that we have, to the point of causing us to struggle with OCD and worry and anxiety and concern or apathy and laziness, that's also a response to God's sovereignty. We get lazy because we want to be in control. Your laziness is also an issue of pride. As much as we want control, God has the authority and power to overrule any attempt to block his purposes. That's his power and authority. Maybe that's your prayer today, God overrule my life. There's anything in my life that is robbing me of joy in you, overrule it. Show it to me. Help me. Release me. Free me. Maybe your prayer today is, God, I, my heart is hard toward your things. I just go and hear words at church and 
that I don't really enjoy your word, I don't really enjoy you, I feel kind of burned out on faith, tell him. Tell him. But there's something that happens when the Spirit of God is prevalent in our life. It's, oh, we are aware of his presence that begins to elevate our view just from the minute details to a place of joy and a freedom and obedience. I'm not sure we've experienced that really yet. That's where I believe we've got to go. I believe as a church, that's where we've got to go. To treasure Christ, to know him and make him known. To care about those that no one else cares about. To share with those that no one will share with. To love the unlovable, to be the father to the fatherless. To carry the good news of the gospel to those who are far away. Instead of acting like tenants who are protecting our own kingdom, that which is not really ours in the first place. What do you owe God? Everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you would be right to come and punish and destroy, but instead you give patience and you give your son. You give your son so that we might have an opportunity to hear and to trust him and follow him. And Father, I would first want to pray for any man, woman, or child in this room that has yet to place their hope and trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that today you would give them faith that they might trust and hope and grace and the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They might know your forgiveness and know the power of your resurrection. That they may say, I don't know all the, the facts, but I want Jesus, Lord, that, that you would do that now. Father, I pray for those who have trusted Jesus and at one time have valued him but are far away, that have loved, created things more than the Creator. Oh God, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, the ability to understand, and your Holy Spirit power to free them from the bondage and addiction and free them to begin to understand the value of how much greater you are than the things that, that we love. Father, I pray for the believer who's just ho-hum and apathetic about the things of God. I pray, Lord, that today their first step of repentance, of apathy, would be confession. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, Lord, cleanse us. And for those who are fighting and striving to live a life of passion and zeal because of the gospel, would you empower them? Would you help them? Would you send them? Father, help us, Lord, to be more than just a gathering on Sundays, but be a collection of your people doing life together for the sake of seeking those who are far off and discipling them up that we might see pagans become church planters. Father, we need you. We want you. We love you. We pray these things trusting fully in Jesus' name. Amen.